You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eli Saslow is a staff writer for the Washington Post. He's the author of 10 letters, The American People in the Obama Years. He won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for American Hunger, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post series. His book, Rising Out of Hatred, won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize for nonfiction. His new book is Voices from the Pandemic. Thank you for joining me, Eli. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you write in your introduction to the book uh, that you spent hundreds of hours interviewing people from every corner of the country to collect the first-person accounts in this book. And I just thought, um, for me, what I'd really like to know is how did you come to that project? I mean, it's such a amazing project. Oh, thanks, thanks for that, Rick. Well, you know, usually my work as a journalist is I- I'm doing um, very, very long, sort of in-depth stories where I'm going to spend time with the people that I'm writing about. So, you know, if, if I'm writing about somebody who's being deported, uh, I'm I'm going back with them to the to the lime fields of Mexico and and sort of interviewing them, but also seeing firsthand, watching watching their lives unfold. And that's that's sort of the 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 kind of narrative journalism that I usually do. Um, when the pandemic hit, it became clear, particularly in those first months, that that kind of journalism was was nearly impossible. I mean, not only would I be putting myself at at risk to sort of get on a plane and go travel somewhere in the early days of this virus, but also I'd be putting the people that I was writing about at risk to get on a plane and to go show up in their in their lives. So I sort of had to figure out um, a new way to go about doing my work. You know, I, I still wanted to tell intimate, uh, empathetic stories about the way that the country was being upended and the way that people's lives were being totally rearranged and disrupted by by COVID. Um, but I, I figured I needed to do that uh, sort of over the phone. Um, and so what I began to do, especially as people around the country were sort of trapped at home and siloed in their own lives, is I would I would reach out to people who, who I, I knew their lives had been disrupted in big ways. And I would start having very long, uh, frequent phone conversations with them, you know, sometimes three, four hours at a time uh, and, and doing that day after day for a series of weeks to, to hear their stories about what they were dealing with. Wow, that's really amazing. How did you choose the people to talk to? Because they seem so, it's so much America. I mean, I just love how American this book seems. You read this book and you think, wow, this is our country. And it's kind of exciting to think that and read that and think that while you're reading. That's really kind of you to say. I think that's true too, because it's, you know, one of the things, um, having reported in a bunch of different places around the world, one of the great joys of, of you know, doing journalism in America is that Americans like to tell their stories. Uh, like if you, once you get past that initial layer of, of sort of building trust, um, people are very confessional. And, and particularly, I think, when, they're, when their lives are, are in a vulnerable place, people want somebody to talk to. Uh, and that certainly was the case in, in, this, in this project. The hard thing, honestly, was that 
you know, trying to, to winnow the stories down to the, the 30 or so that are in the book, because COVID, unlike almost any, any experience that we have in this country, it, it was all of our stories. Like it, it was, we, we all, we all had COVID stories. All of our lives were, were, were changed and altered. And we were all dealing with, with hardships. Some of us, the luckiest of us, very minor and, and others, you know, very extreme. Um, so, you know, everybody I, I called, had compelling things to say about what was happening to their to their life. Uh, so it, it was very difficult to choose, you know, what do I include? I mean, some of it for me was trying to think as I was going about reporting this book, you know, who who are sort of the main who are the people whose whose lives are being rearranged in ways um, that are that are really significant right now? So, for instance, during like the peak of the early waves of COVID, uh, you know, I, I knew that that anesthesiologists and hospitals were doing most of the intubations, uh, and and sometimes they were doing 20, 30 intubations a night with with patients in overrun hospitals. So I thought. I really want to include an anesthesiologist's experience in this in this book, and and I would then call and talk to a dozen anesthesiologists around the country and learn about their work, uh, learn about them, and in those dozen calls, I'd be sort of looking for who's the one person who might be able to sort of narrate this experience with 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 clarity, with feeling, um, and and in that case, in those dozen calls, one of the people I talked to was a guy named Corey, uh, who was a, a relatively new anesthesiologist anesthesiologist in Chicago. He was doing the overnight intubations for the entire hospital. He also uh, has severe asthma and, and was at great personal risk to do this. And the way he talked about his patients, um, the way he talked about sort of his own fears uh, and, and his family's fears for him as he was doing this work made me realize, you know, Corey is the person I want to talk to every night. And, and I, want to, I want to learn about his story and pull it out as much as possible until I can share it in a way that feels authentic and, and true to him. What you just pointed out, I think one of the real appeals of this book is that it's so involved in story. Humans are a narrative species. If I ask you who you are, you're going to tell me a story. And the stories in this book are so powerful. And you yourself, you describe yourself just now, you are a story hunter. And you do a great job of bringing it in, but also of making the the editing of this is just simply amazing because each story seems the perfect length to read and it's hard to stop reading it it's shockingly to me a, a real page turner i mean so talk about identifying the elements of a story and and selecting them from you know the stories you hear yeah, that's a great a great question. And honestly, one of the challenges always in my work because I'm if I'm doing my job right, I'm gathering way more information than I'm ever going to be able to use, right? It's it's uh it's it's a work of of, you know, I think first I sometimes think of it as like going through a funnel, right? So talking to those 12 anesthesiologists to figure out who's who's the one that's really speaking to me and who's the one that I can build trust with and get to this this real layer of authenticity with. And then even in those conversations with the one person that I know I'm going to include, you know, often in the reporting of this book, I was talking to people um 
know, during the worst moments of their lives. In some cases, uh, as people were being evicted, as, as they were having to close their family businesses after generations, um, as they were getting sick, as they were, as they were dying. Uh, and, and so, you know, in those situations, I'm, I'm talking to them about um, some really difficult things. And, and those kind of conversations take time. And, and also they take repetition because I'm, I'm trying to build trust with them so that, you know, the first time that I ask them, you know, what was it like to have to give CPR to your mother? I, I'm a stranger to them. And, and the answer that I'm going to get is going to be, you know, much more surface layer and much more stilted than after I've been on the phone with them for a week and a half. And, and we've talked for hours and hours and they feel like they know me and they trust me. Um, and then, then the conversation becomes much more vulnerable and much more real. Um, so what I'm doing oftentimes with, with each one of these in, in the book, these, these people's stories are, are each, you know, 1500 words. Um, but, but I'm, I'm talking to them for, uh, you know, 30,000 or 40,000 words worth of material. Then at the end of our conversations, I have these transcripts. Um, and then I go through the process of sort of editing and, and, and distilling and shaping and, you know, the story is there that, that they're, what they've dealt with is there, but I'm giving it some architecture, um, to sort of make it, uh, you know, make make it more succinct in 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 book form, um, and, and that's that's one of the trickiest parts of 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 this this book because it's um, you know you also not only do I want to make sure that of course everything in this book is is a quotation and it's accurate, um, but also I want to make sure that after talking to somebody for forty thousand words, the fifteen hundred words that I have are are not only accurate in the most basic journalistic sense, but also a fair and true distillation of their experience. And that's, and that's tricky. And so that was something I thought about a lot. You know, that was one of the things that really struck me about this book was how direct it seemed. When you read each of these uh, passages, it feels like you're really talking to somebody. And I noticed too that Often in nonfiction and certainly in fiction, when people have conversations, it's not the way people really talk. Sure. And, and it can't be because, you know, you're supposed to be just reading it. And here I felt like I was just listening to that person and had a super direct line, like heart to heart, mind to mind. It was eerie almost. And I thought that you did such a good job of, of that. So talk about, you know, the lang hearing the language, reading the language, speaking the language, and speaking the language by writing the language. Yeah, what a, what a, what a wonderful nuanced question. I, I think, um, you know, part of it is that when I was listening, it, my ear, as a, for instance, as I was talking to those 12 anesthesiologists, or, or for every one of these, I, I was looking for somebody who, um, who felt like themselves when I was talking to them, right? People who spoke with like in, in interesting phrases, uh, just just like a, a, a sort of um, who who felt singular, you know? Because I think that's you're right that that's that's what makes us relate to each other. That's what makes people memorable. Is 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 we all have our little idiosyncrasies and and um, sort of ways that we say things, and and that was a big part of capturing the authenticity of each of these people, and also frankly. An important part, I think, for me, of capturing like the diversity of the experience of, of this virus, because 
you know, if I if I was including 30, 35 people in this book, uh, I definitely did not want them to all sound the same because they're not the same. These are, you know, we're talking white, black immigrant experiences, uh, doctors in South Dakota, like highly educated people, people who are just barely scraping by. This was a, a wide cross section. So if it had ended up that these people, that there was a sameness in, in even just the language, that would have been um, wrong. It just, it, it's not the way, obviously, that that uh, it, it's not it's not the truth. We all, we all speak in really different ways. We narrate our stories in really different ways. And that's why when I was going through transcripts um, of these conversations, I was always looking for what's what's a way somebody said something that just is interesting. It's different. It's it's not it's not how I would say it. It sticks in my mind. It's it's like a it's it's an interesting way for them to narrate something. I would always want to include those things um, just just to make sure that that you know when you're reading it, you feel like you're talking to a unique individual person, and and that's that's important. Not only do we feel like we're talking to a unique individual person, I think also, too, it's just amazing to read as a reading experience. This book is phenomenally good. It really it affects your emotions. And there are times, points, especially uh, in the, the parts of it about not only about being the intubator, but about being intubated. And we get those perspectives that actually, you know, made my heart race. I felt like I, that was, it was happening to me. And yeah. that's an amazing effect to, to create. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that. I think part of that is also what I was setting out to do is, um, you know, I, I, I guess like for me, the bedrock of the kind of journalism that I do often is empathy. And, and you know, especially in a country that is increasingly, exactly. yeah, like especially in a country that's in increasingly, you know, divided and, and where, especially during the pandemic, we're all siloed into our own bubbles of, of our own experiences. We're, we're, we're trapped in our own houses, uh, you know, in, in our own communities and also increasingly, frankly, ideologically separated in so many different ways too. It It's it's really important to me as a journalist, but also as a person that we find ways to think about other people's experiences and, and identify with them. So for instance, you know, in the book to have the opportunity to you know, for, for three or four pages, be with, be with somebody as they're being evicted in the middle of the pandemic in, in like a brutal way. But then, you know, two or three pages later to be with the small landlord who, who is not, is, is no longer able to collect rent on their, their five little units and their own finances are collapsing. And um, I think it, it, it shows sort of some of the complications like this, the, the solutions to all of this stuff are, are not simple. And, and, you know, I definitely wanted people to be able to identify with the anesthesiologist who's doing the intubation and the patient who's lying there terrified as this tube is going down their throat. And um, so, you know, I, I tried to think a lot about, um, you know, how are way, what are ways that I can, I can introduce readers to people who they might have assumptions about, and, and maybe their stories will defy some of those assumptions. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, somebody, somebody can read about uh, a, a person's family restaurant closing and the heartbreak of that, and, and suddenly think a little bit about, about, you know, what that perspective might be like, or why that person might be angry and have conspiratorial ideas and, and things like that. And, and similarly, maybe somebody who's, uh, who's an anti-masker can read about 
Lori Wagner, who's who's a 65 year old woman working alone in a store in rural North Carolina and is terrified every time somebody comes in the door without a mask on and is having these confrontations again and again and again. You know, so I think I'm always trying to bring these stories to a place of, of empathy. And the way to do that is to make them as intimate and as personal as possible. It's amazing, too. One of the things I really liked about this book was that the power of it comes from something that's not really apparent to the reader in the reading experience, which is your architecture, the the way you juxtapose the the stories against one another. You even at one point use the photographs as a means of punctuation. And, the, and it's just like when this happens, which is about two thirds of the, the way through the book, it's just devastating to see. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, the black and white photographs because they are definitely a part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And that was important to me from from the beginning. I mean, I think part of it is, um, you know, writing can do a lot, right? But it, but in a, in, in a situation like this, where I'm hoping that, that you know, in many ways, as, as the author of this book, uh, of course, I was doing a lot of things to make it happen. But in the reading experience, I want my presence to be almost invisible, right? I, I'm I'm hoping for people to have a very direct connection with with the people that they're they're hearing from, right? And and, and I want to sort of remove myself, and and I think one of the ways to do that is you enhance that connection by giving somebody a fairly spare portrait of somebody to look at, you know, like and and these black and white portraits, I think, do a lot um, in in that in that direction. You know, it's it's. Um, you, you 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 already feel like you're building a connection through this direct like manner of speaking uh, from from the people who are narrating their stories, but I think it's really enhanced by by the photog- by the photography. Um, you know, it, it's uh, I, I, and and some of those photos, honestly, as I as I think back on the book, when I think about these people, it's those photographs that also stick with me. I mean, Burnell Cotlin and you know, outside of his little store in in the in, in the Ninth Ward, uh, you know, all, all these photographs that that. Um, come very quickly into my into my mind. You know, there are different means of approaching artistic work. Uh, one would be to to like very carefully consider uh, a very involved idea and spend a lot of time in the art. And but in the other, I remember I, I'm a fan of a musician who recently passed away, Klaus Schulz. He's a, a synthesist and one of his early albums had a little quote on it, and I never understood it until much later on, where he said, artistic uh, excellence isn't a matter of quality, it's a matter of quantity. And I thought, mm. what are you talking about? <laughs> That's crazy. But I realized that, especially with a work like yours, where it's a matter of, you have a fairly simple idea, I'm going to interview people and present the interviews. This, in a sense, is not rocket science, but the quantity of work that goes into that and the way you layer that in is an amazing kind. It reminds me also, too, I think of Philip Glass, where the the individual musical parts he's putting out, you know, are kind of are just arpeggios, but they're one arpeggio after another in this kind of hypnotic trance. Effect, yep. which is exactly, I think, you know, the the way that you're working your art, and so I'd like you to talk about that kind of quantity uh, based art um, inclination, which you've already described, you know, with 
forty thousand words reduced to fifteen hundred. That's sure. easier yeah, said I, than done. I think the biggest thing, and this is like you know, has been the lesson of of any work that I do is is there are particularly in journalism, but probably this is true in any kind of artistic work, there are no shortcuts. Like there, there's, uh, you know, so much work goes into every one of these 1500 word, you know, uh, distillations of, of a conversation. And, and there's the reason hopefully that they're good is because all of this work has gone into it that is totally unseen, right? There's no, you know, th the conversations with the other 11 anesthesiologists are not included in the book. And it's not because they didn't say interesting things and they weren't compelling, but it's because I had to have those other 11 conversations to know Corey is the, is the right one. This is, this is who I want to hear from. This is who I want to talk to, you know, and, and I had to talk to Corey for the 40,000 words to make sure I had the right 1500 words. And, and that, I mean, that, that holds true in every kind of writing I've, I've ever done. Uh, it's also true when I'm going out into the field and reporting. Uh, if, if I'm, you know, the, the part of it is because building trust is like the, uh, it's the most fundamental thing in, in this kind of work. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm showing up in these people's lives as a total stranger uh, and, and I'm asking them to tell me things that they've probably never told anybody uh, or, or maybe they've told a, a very close friend with the expectation that that friend will, will keep it quiet. I'm asking them to tell me with the expectation that I'm then going to try to tell as many people as I possibly can, right? It's, it's a huge, huge thing to ask from people. So the, the way I think to honor that um, is, is not to rush it and, and to be patient and to know that, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get this story in the first conversation or in the fifth conversation um, and maybe not in the 25th conversation. It, it's, it's, it's the slow act of, of building trust so that somebody is comfortable being their authentic self with you. And then, you know, I think on the other end, the, the writing end, the editing end, um, my responsibility then to, to the people who have trusted me with that is to get it right. And, and that doesn't always mean writing it, um, writing stories or, or distilling stories in a way that that is in service of the people that I'm writing about. Sometimes I'm going to include things that I know will be hard for them to relive or hard for them to hear, um, but I'm doing it because the only way to do justice to their story is to include it and 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 to include the full picture of, of what they said to me. And and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, um, I guess the responsibility, but also the privilege that I, I carry into every every story that I that I write. I mean, I, I'm it's an honor to to have you know have people, especially in, in vulnerable moments, trust me to observe, trust me to hear about it, um, to have them narrate those experiences to me, and then I owe it to them to do justice to that and get it right. You know, it's also easy to forget that while you are busy getting. Um, the gist of, you know, hundreds of people's experiences of the pandemic, you yourself are experiencing the pandemic. So I'd like you to talk about, and it was something that was really unprecedented and also very unpredictable. We are, you know, every like three months, it seemed like it was about to go away or about to, uh, you know, kill us all. And, and so talk about the, the challenges that what you were writing about and then what was happening and what you were trying to um, explain and, and portray for the American people, uh, what the challenges that that itself caused you in the background behind the scenes. Sure. Well, you're, you're, you're so right that it, 
you know, things moved so quickly and with so much uncertainty, right? It's like we never knew, you know, the sand was shifting under our feet all the time. Um, and, and so one thing I think that that I I was lucky to be able to do since I was reporting most of these also for the Washington Post and for the book is that in real time, I was thinking, where are we right now in the pandemic? Where where are we? And, you know, if, if suddenly we were in a moment in the pandemic where, you know, anti-masking and fights over masking had become a big thing, I could, I could center myself in that moment and think, who's, who's the person, who's the character who might, who might show me what that, that situation is like in a unique way. So I could, I could sort of look at where we were in the pandemic and target my reporting toward that. Um, but you're also right that, of course, you know, my own life had become more, more complicated. I mean, we have uh, three uh, little, you know, school age kids, elementary school kids uh, who, who were home. Uh, I would, uh, you know, we, we were, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it was a mess as, as it was for everybody. Um, you know, I, I think I, like, we were very privileged that like our kids, unlike many kids, uh, it, it had stable technology at home. Um, they're like, we were able to supplement like some, some education stuff by, by helping them reading to them, things like that. Um, but it was, it was, it was complicated. Um, at the same time, honestly, I think the hardest time in the pandemic for me was those first few months because I didn't, I, I'm, uh, you know, I care a lot about the 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 work that I do, and and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I mean, I I, I sort of felt like how how can I how can I still report um, and do worthwhile journalism in this in this moment in this like very big important. Uh, global moment and and so in the end like these conversations um to me ended up being in in some ways a gift like i, I felt like uh, not only was i hearing about people's people's you know experiences in the pandemic that then made me reflect on my own and and realize you know how, how that that i could probably put up with the disruptions in my own life if the people i was talking to could put up with what they were dealing with them um, but also i felt like i i was doing something purposeful and and even if my life was you know, a mess for, for much of the day. I knew that for three hours I would be upstairs talking to somebody and hearing about something that felt important. And then I would have the opportunity to, to share it. So, you know, that in some ways, honestly, the reporting of this book, I think um, like helped me, uh, helped me tremendously during the pandemic. You know, for all the variety of people you talk to and all the differences we see, in perspective, you know, some as you mentioned, we'll see and hear from an anti-masker and, and get to grok that perspective, which is really unique. And then we'll hear from somebody, the woman who who ran that that store and her experiences. For all the difference between those people, rich, poor, sophisticated, whatever, I think. As you read this, you think, wow, America, America, it's one place. And Holy. these are all, every one of these people is unmistakably American. I think that's one of the really lovely parts of reading this book is to see how um, this wide variety of people still had, there's something running through this and all the people you talk to. And, and it's hard to, t hard to describe, but easy to feel. Yeah, what what a what a joy to hear you say that because it's that is so reflective of my experience reporting this book. I mean, it, it's um, one one of the things that's amazing is like we feel like there there are these 
huge things that divide us in the, in this country, particularly right now. Um, but the truth is like once I, you know, every time I'm showing up in people's lives as, as a stranger, oftentimes, frankly, because I'm a journalist for the Washington Post in, in certain places and parts of the country, that now comes with all a, a huge set of, of pre-assumptions that people have about, about me or what I think are my work. But the truth is after five minutes of listening to somebody, of, of, of showing up in somebody's life uh, and, and doing it in a genuine way in which I say, I think what's happening to you is important. Uh, I want to hear about it. I, I think other people should know about it. This this matters. And and being somebody who is there to pay attention to uh, to, to people's pain, to people's to people's experiences, that all of those labels, all of those like ideas of, of, of divides, they go away so quickly. And and very quickly, I'm just a person to people. And, and I'm a person that people want to trust and, and that people are very willing to trust. I mean, it's it's you know, the number of the number of times where I'm sort of stunned by by um, people's capacity to to share and and to uh, to build trust, especially in this case, often over the phone with somebody they'd never met before, is um, that that kind of uh, reignites uh, my my spirit in what this country can be. Right? It's it's we we all want to be seen, and we we want to be part of a collective experience. Um, we 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 want. We want we want other people to hear what we're going through, and we often respond empathetically and with heart to what other people are dealing with, even if those are people who who don't agree with us. So, you know, I think um, some of it, uh, some of the joy of my job is I, I get to sort of do the work of shedding past those labels. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not only judging people based on you know their Facebook feeds and the things that they're sharing on Facebook and whatever else. I'm I'm moving past that, and once you get past all of that stuff. What you find is very often the similar heart, no matter no matter what's like sort of part of the country, ideologically, economically, whatever else you're reporting in. You know, from the earliest times, fiction uh, has used uh, an interesting technique, and I think of uh, Dracula. When you look at the read the novel Dracula, it's comprised of letters, journals articles all put together and the reader has to put together the story and a few years ago this kind of came back into vogue this idea of what's called uh, telling a story by oral history yep and and this book is a, a you know a perfect example of that and what's interesting to me is that even though it's a portraits you know of of all these very different people telling very different stories what you realize as a reader as you're going by is that this is one big story arc each of these sub narratives is like a little mosaic my grandmother used to make quilts and she made this bible quilt where she had all the little stories of the bible in each little square but at, you know at the when you looked at the whole quilt you were seeing the whole Bible story. Wow. And, and this is a very similar feel to this. By the time you get to the end of this, you're not thinking these are different stories. You realize that this is all a huge and beautifully orchestrated arc. And, and it's like a big piece of music. Little I, themes I, all the time <laughs> comes together. You go, wow, that was an amazing piece of orchestral music. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think like, 
a few things help with that. Chronology certainly can help with that. And in the case of this book, that um, as a very simple organizing principle helped a lot because you're, you're, you know, all of these people are narrating their experiences as the big story of the first year of the pandemic towards the vaccines and everything else is is happening. So, you know, it, it in that way they very all they very much are part of the same tapestry and 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 work in that fashion. I also think many of the same sort of you know, uh, emotional, uh, psychological, and like ideological threads carry through many, many of the, whether it's um, anger, isolation, uh, and, and and sort of people calling out to be to be seen certainly come come through from one to the next. Um, I, I read, I'd never done uh, oral histories before this project. And so I, I read many of them before, before I started and as I was going, and there were a few that were really helpful to me, uh, you know, like, Studs Terkel, working books like that, but but there's one, uh, there's a woman named Svetlana Alexievich who wrote a, a, a an oral history about the Chernobyl disaster um, that is just such a beautiful book, and and uh, and and that one uh, was a huge inspiration. You know, uh, one of the subjects that lies in the background of this book and kind of comes through in the foreground it's like gold vein is the, the you know american idea of science which is we science likes to present itself as one fairly easily understood idea you know you're we're gathering facts and we're analyzing facts and that's the end of beginning and end of science but in the american experience it's really complicated and i like the way that you dealt with the way science played out in this pandemic because it wasn't straightforward and it wasn't really, it was kind of shockingly unexpected what happened. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things, you know, this, we we also, science is complicated and it's nuanced. And and I think during the pandemic, we struggled to communicate it effectively at every level, right? And, and I think that that exacerbated many of our problems. Part of it is that you know, we all, um, it's easier to be certain about things than, than to live in a place of uncertainty. And, and, and I think because, you know, whether uh, through, through, through um, sometimes the president's messaging, sometimes through conspiracy theories, whatever else, there was all kind of, of doubt being thrown in the direction of, of, of the vaccines and vaccine development. There, there was then an instinct on on the other side to sort of say this is a panacea. Once these come out, everything's over. It's it's uh, it's it's perfect protection. And and of course, the story always is much more nuanced than in the middle. And and frankly, the story of 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 the pandemic scientifically was largely a story of scientific development, unbelievable, groundbreaking scientific development. But but nobody can be hundred percent certain about things that have never been done before. So so you know, I think. We, we struggle as as uh, as people and, and as a country to live in a place of, of uncertainty and um, particularly when there's a sense of of you know the 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 people that I like the side that I that I that my thinking aligns with they believe this and then there's this other idea of another side nobody wants to 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 sort of embrace the nuance of, of the complications of the middle um, but you know the, the science to me in this was always, uh, remarkably interesting because it, it um, from from both a public health perspective, one of the women in the book uh, is a, a public health uh, official in a, a small town in Missouri, Amber Elliott, um, and, and her story of she just was trying to keep people in her community safe. And, and it was a it was a community where 
you know, the, the rates of COVID were through the roof, death rates were through the roof, the hospital was overwhelmed, and, and Amber, who was trying to help, uh, was in charge of the public health office in the county, and, and suddenly, just by encouraging people to, to mask, to, to, to social distance, all of these other things, she had become a, a massive sort of public enemy in the place where she lived, and people were stalking her kids to their baseball games, and, and so at one point, the community, you know, she decided, let's hold a meeting in this community where we'll have the doctors come and sort of do a public plea to people to please take this seriously. And, and the community then showed up and many of them were booing the doctors who were saving people's lives in this little hospital in this town. So, so the way in which science became politicized um, and sort of distorted through, through this pandemic was uh, alarming. And I, and I think, you know, we, we, we continue to live in the after effects of that now and, and probably will for a long time. Um, on the flip side, you know, the, 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 the development in particular of the mRNA vaccines um, was a, a remarkable, uh, you know, once in a generation scientific achievement that within a year, you know, we, we could have vaccines that um, while, while clearly, you know, they have not prevented the, the entire spread of COVID-19 because viruses mutate and we have not been able to vaccinate the whole world or nearly a high enough percentage of it, the vaccines have proven extremely uh, effective at preventing severe disease and death. Um, and, and, you know, according to data estimates, saved 20 million lives just in the first year of the pandemic, you know, alone. So that's uh, an unbelievable accomplishment that deserves to be celebrated. But unfortunately, I think mostly it's it's misunderstood. Like we're, we're failing to correctly tell one of the most remarkable scientific stories um, of modern times. It's a moonshot that went unnoticed in the general haste. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there, there's one of the interviews in the, in the book is with a, a vaccinologist um, who invented some vaccines named Stanley Plotkin. Uh, you know, and, and I, I forget exactly his quote, but, but um, he, he says something very beautiful in the book about, you know, it, it's be, being a scientist on that frontier is, is like stepping out into space and in, in the, in the total unknown, you know, and, 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 you know, that's what it was. Um, and, and, and what, what a remarkable global achievement, frankly, because it, it was uh, many people from around the world contributing to, to, you know, particularly the, the, the two early mRNA vaccines. Um, but, you know, that technology, I think, Will, will continue to prove super useful uh, in, in many ways. And one of the things that this book does, I think so well, is it, it shows it doesn't tell. And, and again, with science, this is perfectly illustrated because one of the problems with science is science and technology race are light years, probably at least half a century to a century ahead of social our social understanding of how to get along and how we should live with one another so you know we're we're here in the early 21st century science is is up there at at the end of the century and, and we're kind of living in the 19th or the 20th century so talk about um you know that disconnect that while science marches on relentlessly, society not so much. Well, and and also there's so much inherent suspicion of anything that's new, right? Oh. And, and and you know I, I think that became a huge part of of uh, of sort of the the confusion around the vaccines and these mRNA vaccines in particular. You know, and, and 
I think some of it is this, you know, the science of how mRNA works, um, which which I've I've spent a lot of time learning about, um, is is reasonably complicated. But but you can explain it, and and people can understand it. The the problem is that takes time, and and that takes like some some it takes some trust on the part of the storyteller that we can tell the story of what this vaccine does, and people are going to hear it and understand it and listen. Um, and and I, I don't think that was done effectively. And so then instead you have people who who think. You know, my my body is going to be creating something that is that is that is similar to this virus. This what is this vaccine? Is it you know all of these these various conspiracies come up, and mostly it's because of fear, right? We're 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 inherently, I think, frightened of things that we don't understand and that are new. Um, and so, you're right that technology and science have outraced our capacity to uh, to sort of acclimate and 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 grasp things. Um, and and you know, my hope is that some of that is fixed with better storytelling, but certainly that was not the case during this pandemic. You know, one of the things that the stories that I think really think is powerful in this book is that it shows that when something like the pandemic happens, the parts of society that are already kind of dodgy, they're the first to just fall completely apart. And this would be, um, in, in this book, it's the way we care for, you know, the elderly uh, people in America. I mean, it's shameful, but most of the time we don't have to, we're not forced to think about it. But in the pandemic made that perfectly, 100% clear. And I think that's, you know, one of the aspects of the way you tell the story in the book. Again, it's something that you show us that that happens and you don't have to tell us we don't this book is not a series of being lectured to it's it's just a captivated stories that let you the reader go oh my god that really was happening wasn't it yeah i i, I appreciate you saying that i mean one of the one of the people in this book that that uh just will always stick with me was a guy named bruce mcgillis who was basically trapped in in a, in a nursing home um and uh you know, it, it was at a point in this nursing home where, where literally, I think there were 78 people in the nursing home and 70 positive cases, um, and, and and a nursing home that had just totally lost all control of of of, of the virus. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people dying, um, and and Bruce, terrified, had had essentially barricaded himself in his room. He'd stuffed towels under under the door so that nobody could come in. He'd he'd stockpiled some small amount of food, um, and and he would lie in his bed just just waiting to to get sick and die and he'd started just asking anybody for help he'd started dialing 911 again and again and again like please do something something somebody's got to help like what's what's happening here everybody is sick i need to get out of here somebody has to help but the people on the other end of the line were saying well every nursing home is basically in the same situation there's you know there's nothing we can do bruce was in a wheelchair he couldn't make some grand escape um you know, and, and his his desperation and also his sense that he had just been sort of forgotten and like left in, you know, left to waste away in, in, in a war zone without anybody to throw a lifeline to him. Um, you know, his conversations with me were basically a cry for help. Like somebody, please pay attention to this. Like what what can I do to get to get somebody to say, hey, we're going to move you somewhere else. We're going to help you. Um, you know, so I think that sense of abandonment uh, for for in, in in many nursing homes. But frankly, I think. We saw that across society, right? With with uh, you know, with essential workers who, whose experience of the pandemic was so different than than other people's. With you know, in, in every way, I think um, 
this this pandemic exacerbated all of like the the inequities that unfortunately are so are so uh, part and parcel of of, of America. Um, and and similarly, our recovery from the pandemic, uh, like 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 happens after you know a major economic collapse or anything else, th- those of us who are lucky enough to recover and move on recover and move on much more quickly. But but people who were more vulnerable, who were economically more vulnerable, um, who 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 were more likely to get sick, now more likely to have long-term COVID, more likely to have the people that they care about die. That's that's a recovery process that's that's much much longer. So what what that means, I think, unfortunately, is is that trend of like accelerating inequality in almost every way in the United States will will be exacerbated by by the pandemic. You know, uh, too, you talk about. We expect, you know, sickness to have a pretty definite uh, beginning, middle, and end. Not the case with COVID, and it it's fairly terrifying. Again, this uh, a bit reminiscent of the hot zone or something, when you talk the, to the woman who has long term, uh, long haul or COVID, and she just has a spectrum of symptoms that are incredibly intense to the point where she's not often believed. And I think one of the things you provide as a listener and you clearly provided as a, you know, a conversationalist was that you listened to their stories and you believed their words that were coming out of their mouth, even if they seemed unbelievable to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, Caitlin, that, that woman who, who uh, I talked to many people with long COVID, but Caitlin, the one who's featured in the book, uh, she, I mean, she sticks with me a lot because she, she's, she was a division one soccer player who, before she got sick was, you know, in her late twenties and used to going to, for, you know, six or eight mile runs along the shores of Lake Michigan. And, you know, her, her, her complications, even a year after being sick were, were her, her autoimmune system um, was, and frankly continues to be a disaster to the point in which she was on disability at work and, and really not able to function at all in her life. And, and, you know, this virus um, has proven to be so uh, capricious. I mean, I just, uh, I'm now a week, a week uh, clean of, of a recent COVID case. Fortunately, I've been vaccinated and boosted. So, you know, it's, it's my, my course of disease was very, very mild, but even in my own family, it's amazing how different the symptoms were. I had a, a, a fairly severe sore throat and, and essentially no other symptoms. My, my brother, uh, similar age, similar shape, everything else who also got sick had no head cold symptoms, but had extreme muscle fatigue and, and is having heart rate issues still where he's, his heart spikes when he goes up the stairs. It's, it's, it hits every single person so differently. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes it uh, difficult to understand, difficult to treat, uh, and also scary still um, when 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 you when you get it. The the real issue, as you point out, with with COVID is that it's so different and so unpredictable that it diffuses. Um, that or waters down our understanding of it as a, a disease, and it allows us, um, as each in our own silo, to see somebody else and say, "Well, you know, they don't have it that bad," or or something. Sure. And I think that that the actual nature of this disease is really fairly terrifyingly awful. Be, 
as much for the social effects as for the physical effects. And because it's impossible to predict, right? And when you have so many asymptomatic cases, uh, th that obviously exacerbates the spread. It's it's um, it's been so complicated to understand. And I, and you know, part of these conversations certainly was talking to people who were surprised uh, or taken aback by by the severity or lack of severity of 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 their their illness, right? There have been people who spent uh, a year locking down and seeing nobody um, because of COVID and, and being extremely cautious and, and double masking all the time. And they still got sick. And when they got sick, they were surprised to see that like, oh, this, it was, it was like a cold for me. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't bad. And then there were other people who, you know, downplayed the virus. One person in the book, Tony Green, who in Dallas, who thought, you know, uh, this is nothing. Nobody's it's it's a cold. Nobody's going to get that sick. Decided he he was you know going to defy at that point the mandate in Texas by having a a big family gathering at his house and inviting everybody over. And everybody got sick, and and several people died. Uh, and and he was in the hospital for for days, and and left to sort of reckon with uh, what it, what it meant that he had decided to underestimate this thing. So you know, it, it's. Um, yeah, the, the unpredictability, I think, was a really, continues to be a, a really terrifying aspect of, of COVID. And two, it's interesting, the the import of family in this book is, is really uh, well distributed and demonstrated by just the virtue, you, you know, these people who have families, they choose their, the woman who is being evicted in the book, just uh, had such an amazingly positive attitude and i also think of the family where the two sons both got covid and boy that portrait of those these different families what family means to all of us is it's supremely important but what it means on a, the day-to-day -day detailed level is amazingly diverse yeah it's incredible and i think in this case you know this 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 virus was such uh, is such a uh, an interesting sort of wedge in those places because you know for many of us family was what we had left the rest of the world sort of fell away uh, and and we were you know with the people in our own households um, that also meant sometimes in in extremely heartbreaking ways we were separated from other parts of our families right I mean many people in this book who whose loved ones were dying whose parents were in nursing homes and they couldn't see who you know people dying alone and the, and the heartbreak of that um, you know and then I think maybe most terrifying, this feeling that um, because of the way this this virus and respiratory viruses work, suddenly we could be responsible for, for carrying an illness like this and, and spreading it to the people that we that we love. You know, and 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 the idea that the, the my family, the people that I care about most and love the most, I I could get this from them, they could get this from me. Like that, that was a haunting thing. Um, I think for for many of the people that I talked about uh, and talked to, you know, and and for some of them uh, where their worst fears were realized, uh, you know, one woman, Francine Bailey, a, a nursing aide in in uh, in, in Connecticut, who um, a Jamaican American family, 
didn't have the, the, the resources to sort of live separately. So a big intergenerational household, Francine lived with her kids, her sister and her mom. Uh, she, she got the virus because she was an essential worker, went to a workplace that didn't, didn't provide their workers with masks, wasn't doing things correctly. She brought the virus home. She, she decided, she was like, I'm going to do everything possible to make sure that this virus dies inside me. Like the one thing that she did not want to do was spread it to anybody else in her house. Um, and, and, and so she isolated in her room. She had a terrible uh, a terrible go of it, um, huge breathing trouble. And at one point had a panic attack and, and, and just felt like I need to get air and, and ran out of her room to go outside to try to breathe. Her mother doing what a mother would naturally do, saw that her daughter was hysterical and couldn't breathe and went to hug her and try to calm her down. Um, in that moment, this virus passed from Francine to her mother, who was 75 years old. And then over the next days, Francine, isolating in her bedroom upstairs, would lean on the floorboards to listen to her mother now getting the virus and coughing in her room downstairs. And, and as Francine said, you know, her cough sounded exactly like mine. And she knew that her mother was not going to survive this illness. Um, and, and so which was true. She over the next days, she listened to her mother get more and more sick, and then eventually go to the hospital um, and die, where she did not get to say goodbye. And so, you know, not only that experience, but the the guilt that she continues to carry from that, um, the trauma that 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 family, whole family, continues to carry from that, you know, is is um, is just uh, a humbling a humbling thing that that uh, is hard to get your head around. I mean, in in particular because Francine she tried to do everything right. Like she, she was, she was so, uh, she followed every, every recommendation, every guideline. Um, and, you know, now still we're, we're two years later from that and she can't leave the house without taking anti-anxiety medication because she's worried. She's, she's worried that she might somehow harm somebody else again. What do you see doing next as a, as a reporter? This is, seems like a, it's such an amazing achievement and it's such a powerful picture of America Uh, where will you as a reporter go next yeah it's a great question I mean I I think one 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 thing that I'm trying to do and and uh, and doing right now in in my own journalism for the Washington Post is is you know I, I think Sometimes as a country, we're, we're, uh, our attention span is very short, right? Like we we're we're good at ping at, at paying notice to things quickly in the moment. Like mass shootings are a great example of this. Like we 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 pay attention for for it used to be three days, now it's three hours, and then it's sort of like on to the next thing until another mass shooting happens again. And and I think sometimes like finding ways through my journalism to uh, to force people to sustain their attention and, and saying, rather than looking away and moving on to this next thing, like this, this is still happening in this place. And, and let's, let's look and, and, and actually acknowledge it and, and, and think about that. So I've been doing that a lot with the, the, the sort of um, after effects of, of, of the pandemic. I mean, it, you know, right now I'm working on a piece um in, in sort of rural Arizona about uh, schools and what's happened to schools in this country. There, there are massive historic teacher shortages because, um, you know, for many reasons, but one, a lot of teachers retired because they didn't want to be in a classroom where they could get sick. Teaching uh, 
always a, a, a hard and, and underpaid and underappreciated job has become much more so because of behavioral issues, technology issues, all of these things that have manifested in the aftermath of the pandemic. Students are, are students particularly who were previously disadvantaged are even further behind than they were before. Um, so, so you have really like a, a full-blown education crisis uh, in, in places in this country. So I'm, I'm spending time at a school district in Bullhead City, uh, Arizona, where they're supposed to have 150 teachers in this district and they've got 75. Uh, and, and now they're trying to fly in teachers at the last minute from the Philippines and everywhere else to sort of stitch a, a public education system back together. Um, so I think like a lot of what I'll be doing, and I've been doing the same thing writing about like the, the, the waves of foreclosures that are starting to happen that were forestalled by the pandemic. Um, you know, I think for me, a big part of my work uh, over the next years will we'll be looking at the, at the long lasting scars of, of, of what this pandemic has done to people's lives. The new book by Eli Saslow is Voices of the Pandemic. Thank you very much, Eli. My, my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.